Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So uh, recently I asked for Halloween episode suggestions because I had this whole list of Halloween episode suggestions and really none of them were piquing my interest at all. That happens. Uh, yeah, it's, I had sort of analysis paralysis about Halloween episodes. Um, then Helene suggested The Beast of Jevedon. And the second that I made sure that there was a legitimate academic source in English that I had access to, I stopped looking for any other Halloween topic. Because this one is frightening and grisly and just deeply fascinating. So uh, <laughs> that's your heads up if you... It, if you need forewarning about frightening, grisly things, this is frightening and grisly. For hundreds of years, wolf attacks in Europe were really not all that rare. Uh, today, the sort of ecologist's motto is that healthy wolves don't attack humans, but this was absolutely untrue in early modern Europe. There were thousands of attacks by rabid wolves and thousands more attacks by apparently healthy wolves. There had even been multiple incidents in this period in which the same wolf or group of wolves killed multiple people over a period of weeks or months. So wolves in general were considered to be a threat. And uh, any kind of outdoor work, especially if it was around animals like sheep or goats that might attract wolves, uh, was considered to be inherently dangerous. But the attacks that struck the Jevedon region in the 1760s really stand out in particular. Almost exclusively, the victims were women and children, mostly attacked while they were tending animals. Um, the men were generally left alone, even when they were doing the exact same work. Uh, the beast's method of killing was also horrific. In description after description, People talked about it dropping onto a victim in broad daylight, ripping out its throat, often decapitating the person entirely. So people were scared of wolves, but they were terrified of this beast, um, which is why we are going to talk about it today. <laughs> Happy Halloween. Uh, so for some context, the Gévaudan region in the south of France was remote and sparsely settled at this time. So most of its people made their livings as farmers and shepherds. The terrain uh, was forested and mountainous. There were lots of rocky outcroppings. And all of this put it, uh, it kind of made it a, a an area that was sort of perfect for or perfectly dangerous for wolf attacks. The beast's first recorded victim in the Jevedon was a 14-year-old named Jeanne Boulet, who was killed while watching over livestock at the end of June 1764. And then on August 8th, a 15-year-old girl was killed, followed by a 16-year-old boy a couple of weeks later. In September, things took a deadlier turn, with four attacks claiming the lives of a 36-year-old woman and several more youths. Because the wolf attacks were already so common, and because some of these in particular happened more than 20 miles apart from each other, it was only after this particularly deadly period in September that people realized something different was going on. 
During this time, France was divided into administrative regions known as Généralités. By October, the Généralité second-in-command, Étienne Lafont, started trying to organize a constant series of patrols to protect people and find this wolf. Working with a local landowner, he tried to keep eight or ten people on watch at all times. But he had a little bit of trouble recruiting. People were already pretty scared to stray far from their homes and into their own fields. Uh, so getting them to go patrol other people's fields was not exactly the easiest sell. Uh, Lafon wound up securing funds to actually pay people, and he started talking to the higher-ups in the Generalité about the possibility of bringing in professional soldiers. Dragoon Captain Jean-Baptiste Duhamel was stationed nearby and was also active in the hunt. He and his men started scouring areas near where the attacks had happened, hoping to find the culprit. It was around October that, in people's minds, uh, at least, the culprit shifted from being an animal to being some sort of monster. People's letters and even news reports went from describing a bête feroce, uh, a general sort of generic description of a ferocious beast, to talking about the bête with a capital B or uh, le monstre, so the monster. People in more urban and affluent parts of France didn't really believe in werewolves anymore. But that idea was still pretty entrenched in the more rural parts of the country. The beast decapitated a 20-year-old woman on October 7th, and it took a week for people to find her skull. Between October 7th and 15th, six teenagers and a 10-year-old boy were attacked, with most of them sustaining huge injuries to their heads and faces. Only four of these victims survived. Newspapers started describing the beast as being deliberately bloodthirsty, apparently drinking the victim's blood from their necks before moving on to the flesh. Etienne Lafont advised the women and children tending the flocks that they be escorted at all times by armed men. And this unfortunately opened the door to some victim blaming. The economy in this part of France was still really futile. Men and women and children all had work to do, and all of the work was necessary for their survival. So men really did not have the option of dropping what they were doing to escort women. And uh, women and children didn't have the option to just stay out of the fields until they had a man with them. They also didn't have the option of just swapping jobs, since all of these jobs involved being outdoors for the most part. And people didn't just sit around cowering, though, it's important to note. Uh, the hunting parties and patrols that had been established cleared brush, and they gave chase whenever they saw an animal that they thought might be the culprit. They killed more than one wolf in all of this, but the attacks went on. By the end of October, pretty much everybody in the Jevedon region agreed that they were not dealing with a normal wolf. Eyewitness accounts really varied dramatically in what the beast looked like. Some of them described it as having talons. Several uh, described it as having this dark stripe that ran down its back. Um, the one unifying part of all the descriptions was that it was much bigger than a normal wolf. People theorized that it could be a range of animal suspects, uh, including a wolf, of course. Uh, a hyena was also mentioned, some kind of wolf-dog-hyena hybrid. Even a monkey was brought up as a possibility. And this last seems to have started by a report in a newspaper called Courrier, which quoted an American woman who said her country was full of fearsome monkeys that did exactly this kind of thing. 
Which makes me go, really? Yeah, I'm like, qua? <laughs> <laughs> really, American lady? <laughs> so the explanation for how a hyena or a monkey could have gotten into the south of France was that they had stowed away aboard a ship or maybe escaped from a menagerie. Um, this theory was actually a source of hope to people who thought that if this was a, some kind of tropical animal, that it would just die when the winter came. Uh, it was probably also somewhat soothing to consider that it could be something escaped from a menagerie rather than an actual uh, sort of unnatural monster that we yeah. know, that would be more of an unknown. Slightly uh, less frightening. <laughs> uh, so, so late in October, a small group of hunters on the search for the beast flushed a large wolf from its den and they shot it repeatedly. And this large wolf was slowed by the bullets, but it could still move more quickly than the men that were chasing it. And so it got away and they never found the body uh, and came to the conclusion that it had somehow survived their gunfire. This contributed to the idea that there was something supernatural at work. It really shouldn't be surprising that as these attacks went on, since they were just spectacularly gory and horrifying, Newspapers became increasingly sensational in their coverage of it. Uh, Here's an account of an event in November. Quote, on the 23rd at five o'clock in the evening, this cruel beast throttled a woman in a village. And after having eaten the neck all the way down to the shoulders and having sucked the blood from the body, it carried away the head. Hunters, uh, in sort of a grisly move, began using the remains of the beast's victims as bait. They were hoping to draw the creature out again. Uh, not only did it not work, it also upset people, understandably. And as the fall turned to winter, the weather started to seriously get in the way of effectively hunting. Uh, before we talk about the next major shift in all of this, Holly, would you like to take a moment for a brief word from a sponsor? I would indeed. In December, the Dragoons, led by Jean-Baptiste Duhamel, found what they thought was the beast while they were hunting through the forest. Duhamel himself was prepared to fire on it. He had it in his sights. But the other men, not realizing what was going on, came up behind him and startled it. They unfortunately lost sight of the beast as the sun went down. Duhamel was deeply distressed by this, not merely because he had missed their quarry at the likely expense of more lives being lost, but he also had a little bit of a, um, an ego element in the, in the mix. He didn't want to lose the glory of being the one that took the beast down. Yeah, he was a soldier and had, you know, gotten acclaim on the field of battle before. And now that he was not in a battle, he was very frustrated by the failure to get more acclaim. And fortunately, this was just the first of many of Duhamel's failures to capture his quarry. As people started to question whether he knew what he was doing, he started distributing drawings and telling people really vivid accounts of this monster to try to convince everyone that it wasn't his fault. He was sort of building this mythology that the creature was too powerful and too obviously supernatural to be caught quickly. And as 1764 drew to a close, uh, a bishop from the church put out an official circular that said that the beast was a scourge sent by God. So it just built that mythology up a little bit more. In January of 1765, Duhamel started sending out his dragoons dressed as women to try to escort women and children about their duties in the fields. 
He was hoping that the wolf would mistake them for a woman and attack, since it mostly attacked women and children. Uh, this didn't work. I like that the beast could clock their drag. Um, <laughs> on January 12th, a 12-year-old boy known as Portefey reportedly chased down the wolf and attacked it with a bayonet after it had attacked and dragged off a small child. Uh, Portefey became famous for this act of extreme bravery or foolishness, depending on your point of view. Uh, although there were accounts of it that were heavily embellished and the v- different uh, accounts of what actually happened vary quite a bit from one to another. Portefey, however, became a rallying cry. Duhamel becoming kind of desperate to, uh, to catch the thing and to maintain his, his reputation organized a massive hunt to take place on February 7th, 1765. This was not the first coordinated hunt that was going to take place for multiple parts of this area in France at the same time, but it was definitely the biggest. About 20,000 people gathered in about 100 different parishes. And in spite of there being heavy fog that day and about six inches of snow on the ground, search parties spread out from their respective communities at the same time to try to find the beast. One party thought they did. And as they pursued the animal that they believed to be the beast, it tried to escape down a river. Villagers in the town of Mazieux were supposed to be patrolling the riverbanks, but one of that town's most prominent citizens had said he would stay home if the weather was bad, and enough people followed his example that the beast easily slipped through this hole in the defenses. However, and perhaps in an effort to save face, a hunting party from Mazieux claimed that it had seen and shot the beast. So Duhamel abandoned his original plan, which was to have a second massive hunt on the 11th if the one on the 7th failed. Instead, he arranged a smaller hunt to focus just on the area around Malzieu to take place on the 10th. As they were hunting, a teenage girl was killed while feeding her livestock. Duhamel regrouped and prepared to keep hunting near where that attack had occurred on the 11th, using the girl's body as bait. They did not succeed on the 11th, and they tried again on the 12th, this time fighting biting windy weather. And in spite of their multi-day attempt, and with so many hunters on the on the team, they found nothing. On his return from this hunt, Duhamel again tried to explain his failure and retain his position with a supernatural explanation. According to him, the beast was a witch or the devil. After all, 20,000 men, which he, in his telling, rounded up to 30,000, had failed to get it. So it had to be magical or supernatural. Yeah, he was really getting desperate to, to hold on to his position. What he did not know was that his replacements as basically wolf hunter in chief had already been chosen and were on their way to the Javadan. Jean-Charles-Marc-Antoine de Vonzel d'Onneval of Normandy took Jean-Baptiste Duhamel's place in the fight against the beast of Gévaudan. They arrived in February with Jean-Charles' son, Jean-Francois, accompanying his father. The Deneval did not get along with the wolf hunters in the Gévaudan. They made demands for help and for accommodations that rankled people. They were simultaneously overconfident and underprepared. Some of the other wolf hunters who'd been searching the Jevedon for months decided that they were frauds. You know how in bad, badly written crime dramas, you have the scene where the local police have been trying really hard to catch the killer 
And then some really slick FBI guys come in and stomp all over their investigation. Yes. It was like that. Yeah, they were all swagger and did not really have the skills. Uh, meanwhile, in March, the London Chronicle published an obviously satirical article, possibly written by Horace Walpole, about the beast, saying that it had eaten the entire French army and was found to have mortars, cannons, and at least 100 small arms in its belly when it was slain. This really annoyed the people of France and the monarchy uh, because a lot of people had been killed in the Gévaudan already. So to kind of make fun of the whole thing was kind of a slap in the face. We should put these years into the Was England at War with France uh, websites. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that they were. <laughs> but, you know, socially they were. <laughs> socially they were having some issues. Um, even in light of the fact that France was facing facing international criticism for its failure to take care of this wolf problem. And King Louis XV himself was eager to have this beast killed. The Denevals did not do much in March or April. They just did not seem to be in a big hurry. They blamed local people for all manner of ills and for their uh, failure to get the beast. Meanwhile, there were 14 deaths over those two months. One death in particular uh, of note. On March 13th, the beast attacked a group of children in the garden outside their home. And their mother, Jeanne Varlet, was with them and reported to be pregnant. She turned to see the beast attack her six-year-old. And in a struggle that went on for several minutes, Varlet climbed onto the beast's back in an effort to wrestle her child from its jaws. When she fell off, it jumped over a hedge and she gave chase. One of her older children was inside the house and he heard the commotion and came out with a lance and the family sheepdog. And he chased the animal and they basically fought it until it tired out, abandoned its quarry and ran away. The six-year-old unfortunately didn't survive, although the rest of the family did. And Varley's story spread as one of heroic tragedy. So she became kind of an emblem of the need to get this over with. Yeah, I'm sure that was uh, a little bit of an ego blow to all of these hunters that a pregnant woman and her children had kind of had better luck, at least kind of running this animal down than they had with their firepower and hunting knowledge. Uh, in early May, the Denevals started trying to combat the wolves by poisoning the bodies of their victims and leaving them out as bait. This did not work and once again upset people. Then, in mid-May, there was a two-week period with no wolf attacks. The Denevals took credit for it, and they said they must have actually killed a wolf that they'd shot and had then gotten away earlier in the month. Then when another attack happened on May 19th, they started trying to seek the protection of the king at Versailles. They were afraid that their actions were going to catch up with them and that they themselves might come to harm. They were finally forced to leave town and their reputations were in shreds. And before we turn to a little happier part of this story, let's take another brief moment for a word from a sponsor. That sounds grand. And now we will get on to the resolution of what happened in Jevedan with this beast. So the Denevals, who have been run out of town, were soon replaced by Francois Antoine, who was the king's gun bearer. He organized hunts with dogs and men, using dogs in particular to try to cover the region's more difficult terrain. 
And unlike the Denevals, he was extremely polite. He gained the trust and the affection of the locals. He did not walk in with a bunch of attitude and swagger. He really tried to work with them. And he worked through the summer of 1765 as the deaths continued to find the beast. On September 20th, Antoine caught sight of a wolf so big that at first he thought it was a donkey. From about 50 paces away, he shot it with a long-barreled musket that he loaded with a lead ball along with lots of other smaller pieces of shot. The animal was hit, but it wasn't killed. It got to its feet and went after Antoine, who had to retreat rather than trying to reload his weapon. Monsieur Reinhard, who was an officer of the hunt, delivered the actual killing shot. They took the wolf's body to a nearby chateau, and then they brought in people who had either witnessed or survived attacks to identify it. They all agreed that this was the wolf that attacked them. And even so, Antoine urged people not to drop their guard yet. Pretty much everyone in the Jevedon who looked at it agreed that the thing was enormous. And as Antoine and others told the story over and over at depositions and when talking to the newspapers, this description just got bigger and bigger. Antoine set about hunting for any offspring the beast may have had and ordering an artisan to construct a frame for its skin so that it could be preserved and sent to the king. It wound up being embalmed instead, and by the time that happened, it had already started to decompose. The beast body arrived at Versailles on the 1st of October, but the court of Versailles was not nearly as impressed with it as the people of the Jevedon had been. Uh, they had really suffered from some inflated expectations by people increasingly talking about how more and more monstrous this thing was. Uh, also, because of what we just discussed with the embalming, it smelled. Antoine finished his task of seeking and destroying wolves from around the area where the beast had been killed on October 17th. And for more than two months, there were no more wolf attacks. This is actually a, you know, it stretched into, like, that was two months from when he finished killing. But it wound up that there weren't any deaths from when he shot that wolf until December 7th, 1765. That day, two boys survived a wolf attack while they were guarding cattle. And then an 11-year-old girl was killed on December 21st. Uh, Unlike the first time around, when it had taken so many deaths before people saw it as a pattern, Everyone immediately panicked. However, there was also this uh, kind of issue of saturation. Everyone also, while they were quicker to recognize this danger, they were also kind of tired of talking about this beast. Uh, so there are far fewer newspaper reports and other records detailing what happened between Francois Antoine killing a wolf on September 20th of 1765 and Jean Chastel killing another one in August of 1767. Yeah, so almost two years later. The wolf that Chastel killed was big, although not nearly as big as the one that Antoine had killed almost two years before. However, Chastel followed what Antoine had done. He, like, followed his example. He rounded people up to ID this wolf and say that it was the wolf that had attacked them. Uh, And then he sent its body to Versailles. However, by the time it arrived in Versailles, it was extremely rotten. Uh, The king was extremely insulting to Chastel and his son for having just brought this rotten wolf carcass into his presence. And the king ordered them all away. Uh, folklorists and researchers started documenting the Jevoudan wolf lore almost immediately. Uh, in the 1880s, a man named Pierre Pouchet wrote an enormous history of the wolf. 
And there are all kinds of theories about exactly what this animal was and whether it was acting on its own or whether uh, it had been trained to somehow attack people. This last theory actually got a shot in the arm when people realized that Jean Chastel had played a prank on a wolf hunting party two years before. They had basically said, hey, is this ground up here safe to walk on? And he was like, yeah, it's awesome. And it was actually a bog. And so the wolf hunters sunk into it up to their chests while he laughed along the sidelines. Uh, there are people who are extremely suspicious of him now and kind of <laughs> wonder if he had trained animals to attack other people and that that gap between killing one wolf and uh, and another attack happening was because he was having to retrain another animal. That gets into some kind of conspiracy theory ideas. Not totally sure. We should call Ben and Matt in and see what they think. We we will probably never know for sure uh, if this beast was actually a wolf or multiple wolves or perhaps even something else that hasn't been identified. More recently, the beast makes an appearance in the movie Brotherhood of the Wolf. I love that movie so much I can't even describe it. (laughs) <laughs> that goes into the category of cinema that I like to call haute fromage because it's a little cheesy, but yeah. it's also really fantastic fun. And it has Vincent Cassel, which is the important part for me. Uh, and the Gévaudan region is now part of the Department of Logiere. That happened after the French Revolution, though, so that was not in play when this was going on. Right. So that is the Beast of Gévaudan. Creepy and... Yeah, the the book that was the primary source on this. Normally, when I research episodes, there are like 15 or 20 sources, at least. Um, this one was mostly sourced from a book by Jay Smith called Monsters of the Gévaudan, which was published by Harvard University Press in 2011. That's pretty much the source in English <laughs> on this story. Uh, so it has a lot more detail of, about various things that went on if you were interested in it. Uh, I had to get it from interlibrary loan, um, which is I had to time it just right. So uh, if this story interests you, I highly recommend that book. It gets into um, sort of the, the the beginning of it talks a lot about how the the search for what was this animal kind of distracts from the greater story of like why people in France were so obsessed with this thing uh, when it was going on. So. It's a good read. I also have some listener mail. Yay! Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna read two things about spam. Spam, spam, spam. The first thing about spam is from Lisa. Lisa says, "Hi Tracy and Holly. I don't actually eat spam. I'm a vegetarian, but I did like your episode this week. I was surprised that spam actually doesn't include junk meat like hot dogs do, but it still looks a little gross to me. I've never actually tried it though, so I'll take your word that it tastes better than it looks." I live in South Korea, and seeing people in stores dressed up in hanbok, which is traditional dress, during the big holidays selling large gift sets of Spam was one of those things I thought was really strange when I moved here. It's one of those gift box types that a lot of expats kind of joke about. What did your school get you for suck? Any Spam? No, just a box of toothpaste and soap. But now that I'm used to seeing it, it's not strange anymore. I've heard from a lot of people about how Spam became popular here during the Korean War, as you guys mentioned in your podcast. And actually, during holidays, they are still very common gifts, along with expensive boxes of enormous fruit, boxes of Hanwoo beef, which is really the meat considered to be the luxury here now, and everyday things like shampoo. Um, and then she says that we did okay with our 
pronunciations of Korean cuisines, which made me really happy. Or she's very kind. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the other story that I wanted to read about spam is from Samantha. Samantha says, I wanted to share with you a little bit of spam history that you may or may not have come across while doing your research. A bit of backstory. I grew up a military brat and moved all over the world with my Navy parents. For two years, my family lived on the small Pacific island of Guam. The island is devastatingly beautiful, and the Shimoro people love to throw parties, and the food at these parties is amazingly flavorful and delicious. I know you mentioned in the podcast that Spam is popular in Guam, but I don't think you understand just how popular. On average, Shamoros, the native people of Guam, eat 16 tons of Spam per year, the highest per capita consumption in the world. The island loves the canned meat so much that the McDonald's on the island have Spam on the menu. At my middle school, Spam fried rice was sold in the cafeteria for breakfast and lunch, and even between classes, you could grab a quick snack on the go. I rarely went to a classmate's house without being offered some sort of Spam-based meal. And although it was nearly 20 years ago, I vividly remember begging my mother to purchase one of those locally written and published Spam cookbooks so we could learn to cook like my classmate's parents. A few years ago, the Hormel company actually created a limited edition spam can with flag of Guam to honor the anniversary of the island's liberation from the Japanese occupation during World War II. I may be wrong, but I believe they've done this a few times. For similar reasons, Tabasco is also very popular on Guam. They consume the highest amount per capita of the spicy sauce as well. Guam was the inspiration and testing ground for the hot and spicy spam. Spam! Made with Tabasco. In case you're wondering, yes, it is delicious. Thanks for making me crave spam like crazy. Samantha. <laughs> We've gotten so many great spam stories. I have like 10 more of them flagged in the email for following up. I doubt we will get to read many more spam stories. I mostly wanted to read a couple more that were from a couple of other places. I did eat some spam after that episode. And you um, found it while- delicious. Yeah, while I was on my vacation, it's a long story about the vacation, but we had a theme of the vacation that was basically about kaiju, uh, <laughs> so big monster movies. And we made a lot of foods that were uh, from Asian cuisines. Um, and I had told the person arranging the food that if she got me some spam, I would like to try making some spam musubi. Uh, and she did. And I wound up making it little pieces of it instead of the big pieces that they normally are, because we had 35 people Uh and wanted more people than just me to get to try it. Uh, we had a good time. It's quite yummy. Uh, you you sent me a picture, and it looked very, very cute. Yes. Like, you did a good job with presentation. Yeah, we put it on our on our Facebook wall. I put a picture of it on there. So uh, if you would like to write to us about spam or werewolves or anything else, you can do that at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and we are on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash mistinhistory. Our Spreadshirt store, where you can buy all kinds of shirts and things, is at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com. And if you would like to learn a little more about what we have talked about today, come to our parent company's website. It is howstuffworks.com. Put the word werewolf in the search bar. You will find how werewolves work, which I actually wrote during my days as a staff writer which actually talks about the Beast of Jevadon as one of the sources of werewolf lore in modern culture. Uh, you can also come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, to find show notes and an archive of every single episode we have ever done. You can do all that and a whole lot more at howstuffworks.com or mistinhistory.com. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 